Blog Talk Radio. We assembled here today are issuing a new decree to be heard in every city, in every foreign capital, and in every hall of power. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. Every decision on trade, on taxes, on immigration, on foreign affairs will be made to benefit American workers and American families. We must protect our borders from the ravages of other countries making our products, stealing our companies, and destroying our jobs. Protection will lead to great prosperity and strength. I will fight for you with every breath in my body, and I will never, ever let you down. I am your voice. So to every parent who dreams for their child and every child who dreams for their future, I say these words to you tonight. I am with you, I will fight for you, and I will win for you. To all Americans tonight, in all of our cities, and in all of our towns, I make this promise. We will make America strong again. We will make America proud again. We will make America safe again. And we will make America great again. God bless you, and good night. I love you. Unfiltered talk and the hardcore truth. 
Mega, mega, mega. Kim Jong-un is playing games. He's sticking around. Kim Jong-un is trying to, uh, you know, call the shots. And Trump's not having it. Trump's calling the shots. 
you know, this Trump is is making the rules here. Kim Jong-un is going to have to comply eventually, and everybody's going to see that. And Kim Jong-un is going to cave in, and we know Kim Jong-un is going to, uh, not going to have a choice. But uh, here's the question. Uh, one, two. I'd like to begin by saying that based on the recent statement of North Korea, I've decided to terminate the planned summit in Singapore on June 12th. Well, many things can happen, and a great opportunity lies ahead, potentially. I believe that this is a tremendous setback for North Korea and, indeed, a setback for the world. I've spoken to General Mattis and the Joint Chiefs of Staff and our military, which is by far the most powerful anywhere in the world, that has been greatly enhanced recently, as you all know is ready if necessary. Likewise, I have spoken to South Korea and Japan, and they are not only ready should foolish or reckless acts be taken by North Korea, but they are willing to shoulder much of the cost of any financial burden, any of the costs associated by the United States, in operations if such an unfortunate situation is forced upon us. Hopefully, positive things will be taking place with respect to the future of North Korea. But if they don't, we are more ready than we have ever <laughs> been before. Oh, yeah. North Korea has the opportunity to end decades of poverty and oppression by following the path of denuclearization and joining the community of nations. And I hope that Kim Jong-un will ultimately do what is right, not only for himself, but perhaps most importantly, what's right for his people, who are suffering greatly and needlessly. All of the Korean people North and South, deserve to be able to live together in harmony, prosperity, and peace. That bright and beautiful future can only happen when the threat of nuclear weapons is removed. No way it can happen otherwise. If and when Kim Jong-un chooses to engage in constructive dialogue and actions, I am waiting. In the meantime, our very strong sanctions, by far the strongest sanctions ever imposed, and maximum pressure campaign will continue as it has been continuing. But no matter what happens and what we do, we will never, ever compromise the safety and security of the United States of America. I want to make that statement. Feel very, very strongly about it. Our military, as you know, has been greatly enhanced. Will soon be at a level that it's never been before. Our approval of $700 billion this year and 716 billion dollars next year 
largely due to the help of a lot of the people with me today and standing right here. We appreciate. But we had to do that for our military, and we've done it. And hopefully everything's going to work out well with North Korea. And a lot of things can happen, including the fact that perhaps, and would wait, it's possible that the existing summit could take place or a summit at some later date. Nobody should be anxious. We have to get it right. Very well said, and uh, I will get to that in one second. Uh, in case you're just joining us, everybody, uh, Mike Zolo, are you on the line, my friend? You bet. Excellent. Great to have you here, buddy. Like always, Mike Zolo, everybody. Um, but in case you're just joining us, everybody, we have a very exciting show tonight. Uh, lobbyist, best-selling author, and president of Families Against Mandatory Minimums, Kevin Ring will be calling in. Uh, we will have a lot to talk to him about. He's got uh, a novel of a resume. He's been in the uh, D.C. politics industry for 30 years, so uh, and he has a lot of um, definitely insight and knowledge he can give us, and he's uh, you know working in that area on a daily basis. So uh, it's going to be uh, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun to talk to him. Uh, we will also be ha- having uh, political strategist, activist, and popular talk show host Josh Bernstein be calling in tonight. He's got a lot of new uh, sources and uh, stuff going on uh, and uh, some new uh, new uh, details to uh, reveal with us about some, uh, about some of the big headlines going on. So uh, we always like talking to him, and uh, he gets a lot of uh, uh, good information and a lot of information from uh, – uh, big sources in uh, D.C. So, and his talk show is doing really well. So, uh, I'm proud of him for that. Um, so, we'll be talking to him uh, in a little bit. Um, we'll, we'll be talking to uh, Kevin Ring as well in a little while. Um, I do want to talk about, you know, what was just said though, and and Mike Zolo and uh, Gianni. <clears throat> I want to get both of your input um, on the, you know, what was just played. Obviously, today, uh, President Trump canceled the uh, North Korea summit, and we all know Kim Jong-un is dicking around. Kim Jong-un is trying to control the narrative. Kim Jong-un is trying to, you know, have the game his way. And President Trump is, you know, uh, putting the, you know, laying the line, you know, drawing the line and and saying, you know, and, and call, President Trump is calling the shots. But this is President Trump's uh, decision because we all know, and it's the right decision for President Trump to cancel and, uh, you know, because President Trump has all the authority. We all know Kim Jong-un is going to have no choice but to eventually cave in and going to have to eventually cooperate with President Trump if he wants to have any sort of, uh, any sort of temper tantrums, uh, you know, any, anything, you know, solved. Uh, you know, the temper tantrums aren't going to work and, the th- you know, the threatening and trying to control the U.S. is not going to work. Donald Trump is in control here. Kim Jong Un is going to have to get on his knees uh, eventually. This, you know, this Kim Jong Un playing the tough guy thing—it it ain't going to fly with President Trump. That's for damn sure, and we saw that today. Um, so, you know, very, very proud of President Trump for, uh, you know, being firm and, uh, you know, being very direct on uh, on this matter and, and addressing this, uh, you know, with such toughness. You know what I mean? Well, you well, absolutely. And the thing is, is Kim Jong-un, about a week ago, he was starting to talk, uh, you know, some shit, you know, <clears throat> trying to say, oh, 
I'm not going to go to the I'm not going to go to the meeting. And then Trump a week later said, you know what? There ain't going to be a meeting because I said so. So yeah. look, Trump Trump knows how to negotiate. He's he's yep. done very, very big negotiations in his life. He's a master strategist and he's going to be the one calling the shots. But the reason he right. did this is because Kim Jong-un thought it was a good idea some uh, in some way to uh, publicly say that he's thinking of not having the meeting anymore. So Trump beat him to it and said, no, 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 I'll tell you, we're not going to have the meeting. So at the end of the um, day, I tell Trump, I tell me, tell Trump how it is. He don't tell me. <laughs> it's funny because this guy is scared shitless and he's trying to, uh, you know, play the tough guy card as, as long as he can. But at the end of the day, um, Trump is going to strangle their economy so bad with sanctions that he's not going to have a choice but to denuclearize and meet with Donald Trump. So I'm not really worried about it. I'm very happy that Trump um, canceled it because this is a new president. This is a president who will walk away from the table if he doesn't believe the other person uh, is truly in it. And he didn't believe at this time that Kim Jong-un was willing to be serious about this. Trump doesn't play play games. Trump is a serious guy. He's a badass, and he's not going to let Kim Jong Un dictate what goes on in these meetings and how the and how the meeting is going to take place and what's going to be the subject. The subject is going to be what Donald Trump wants it to be, which is, hey, listen, you're going to remove all your weapons. You're going to destroy them. You're going to denuclearize. You're going to make friends with South Korea. You're going to stop being China's bitch, and you're going to start you know, respecting other countries. And that's what's going to happen at the end of the day. But this took balls for Trump to do this because he knew, he knows the media is going to come back saying, oh, look, see, we told you it wasn't going to work. We told you this would never happen. But Trump doesn't care about that. He's a results kind of guy, and he is the master negotiator. He canceled this meeting because Kim Jong-un wasn't serious, threatened to pull out, Trump said, that's fine, no more meeting. So Trump has the final say, and if I had to guess, Kim Jong-un will be crawling back. Absolutely, 100%. Absolutely. Gianni, and I know you want to get on, in on this. Go ahead, your take. Yeah, you know, I, I agree with everything Zolo said, you know, and uh, I really think that Trump knows exactly what he's doing. You know, he's a businessman. You know, he's done this all his life. Nothing is new to him. You know, I feel like he already kind of had two plans. He had, all right, if he, you know, if Kim Jong has his act together, I know to go ahead and go. But he always has a backup plan, and that's what people don't notice about Trump. And that's why he's so good at it, because he already looks ahead to see whatever the outcome I have looking ready for it. So I believe this is very uh, well thought out, uh, you know, to back up from this plan, you know, because that's what Kim Jong was going to try to do. Put the put all the blame on Trump. Of course, we know that. But like like Donald said, this is a new president. He's not just gonna, you know, go over there and then be a slave like Obama would be. Like if he tried to make deals, or if he tried, which he didn't. But uh, yeah, I believe at the end, you know, Kim Jong Un, you know, is gonna suck his cock. You know, at the end of the day, and uh, <laughs> Donald basically yeah, Donald go. Trump is basically <laughs> gonna win. I mean, I mean, he's always gonna win. He somebody people are always gonna. Uh, 
about. You know, I know uh, uh, I forgot the, the woman's name. To. Yeah, 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 exactly. So that's what I mean, I'm saying. I, what I choice does, Yeah, what choice does Kim Jong-un have? I mean, it, you know, it's not it's not the pussy Obama anymore where you can, you know, just try to walk all over someone. This is Donald J. Trump. Donald J. Trump has giant brass balls like nobody we've ever seen ever in history. And you know what? Kim Jong-un, you know, is not, you know, Donald J. Trump controls this whole narrative. Kim Jong-un is is the little bitch in this situation. Kim Jong-un is going to get nowhere unless he cooperates with Trump and makes uh, some sort of negotiation with Trump because, let's face it, Kim Jong-un is doing all these petty threats, but what he really wants is stuff from the U.S. And the only way he's going to get that is if he sits down and has an adult conversation and sits down and they talk about it like men. He's not going to get it by threatening us with nukes, trying to be the big and tough, powerful, macho man that he's not. He's a little short, fat guy in North Korea that, I mean, mean, come on. Come on, Kim Jong-un. Yeah. You're You're not a tough guy. You're a little... You're, just because you got bodyguards around you and nuclear, you think you're something, bro. Like, no, come on. I mean, like, yeah, somebody. You, and we all know, we and we him. all know, and we all know, if Kim Jong Un even tried to tr- throw a nuke our way, his whole country would be wiped out within about two seconds. Yeah, I, I, and that's why I don't think people really get "Make America Great Again" the slogan, like. We got to remind yeah. Kim Jong Un, this isn't the 1900s anymore. You know, you're not, you're, we're not scared of dictators. But never forget, America was the one to take down. Don't forget, America blew last time I checked an Asian country away one time. If you forgot about that, you forgot about Nagasaki. You forgot about have you have people forgotten about that? Like America, that's what Trump means, make America great again. Because we got to bring yep. the toughness yep. back to America. Where people will Hell fear yeah. whenever you know that you do something to America or to any of his allies that you're going to reach hell from us. We, that's why I love Mad Dog Maddox because I remember I was watching uh, an interview and they asked Mad Dog Maddox, it was like, what makes you lose sleep at night? He was like, nothing. I make other people lose sleep. That is the kind of toughness we need, you know, in the military. And that's the kind of toughness that we need in this country again where nobody's going to fuck with us no more. And they know if they fuck with us, they're going to get fucked. And period, that's exactly. it. Exactly. Problem solved. Exactly. And Trump, I mean, no, go ahead, Dylan. Yeah, I was just saying, uh, Trump knows exactly what he's doing because I don't know if you're aware. Uh, I'm sure you're aware that Trump is hitting North Korea with sanctions. But the sanctions that Trump is hitting with North Korea are, it's the most sanctioned ever. Like, he is going to strangle North Korea economically with these sanctions that it, it, it'll it is going to hurt North Korea. Kim Jong Un is not look. Not only is Trump unpredictable and Kim Jong Un is scared of him, but on top of that, Trump is hitting him with the most sanctions ever. It's a maximum pressure campaign. No joke. Trump is Trump is strangling that whole country. He's cutting them off and. Uh, at the end of the day, Kim Jong-un is going to need stuff, okay, for his country. So he mm-hmm. will come crawling back. Do not forget about the sanctions because Trump is hitting him with massive, massive sanctions. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. there's no doubt about it. I mean, there's, 
you know, Kim Jong-un is not getting any sort of leeway or any sort of, uh, you know, they're not taking any chances. They're going to, uh, you know, especially after some of the latest comments from Kim Jong-un, totally unacceptable and out of line. It's, it's almost like, it, like I said, Kim Jong-un is dicking around. Like, you, you, you can't even tell at this, at this point. It looks like he's not even serious. At one, at one point, we thought he was about sitting down with Trump. But now, uh, you know, is it uh, – I don't know. I, uh, well, it's, it's interesting for sure that uh, um, Kim Jong-un all of a sudden had a, had a change of effect. I mean, uh, Trump, well, uh, you know, ma- made all of the uh, accommodations, uh, you know, possible uh, to make him feel – uh, to make Kim Jong-un feel comfortable, he even nixed the military exercise, one of the military exercises that Kim Jong-un was complaining about. Uh, I mean, Donald Trump did more than enough to make uh, Kim Jong-un feel safe uh, for them to meet. And now Kim Jong-un, you know, is apparently making comments about Mike Pence and then uh, uh, my, uh, uh, jo- um, um, John Bolton. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's just... Uh, I, yeah, your your thoughts, Solo. I, you were, you had something to say. Sorry, you were you were about to say something. Go ahead. No, it's all good. I was just saying that um, we, I, you know, I say Kim Jong Un is in serious, but actually I'm wrong. I, I think Kim Jong Un isn't. I think he is serious, but I think he's just trying to buy time. I think he's just trying to 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 flex his muscles a little bit to show the world that he's still the leader you know, a big, bad North Korea. I think at the end of the day, he's scared shitless. I really do. I really do think that he meets with his generals and, and yeah. his, um, his military. And he's like, holy shit, like, I'm going to try to buy some time. But this guy is like out of his mind, meaning Trump. So I, I think it comes off that he's not serious, but he knows damn well the sanctions are going to kill him and and at the end of the day, he's scared. So I think he's just trying to flex his muscles. I think he's trying to be a tough guy, talking shit about Mike Pence. But believe me, he's serious. If he wasn't serious at all, he would have never crossed the DMZ. He would have never crossed the border into South Korea and hugged the South Korean president. He would never right. have done that if he was not scared of the United States president. So, and he's also so think, and he's also worried about being the next Gaddafi or Saddam Hussein. He's worried about. I feel like that. Deep, like he's thinking about that in his mind. What if that happens to me? You know, what if the U.S. tries to do that to me? I mean, that was. And there was another a couple of reports about that as well. Well, absolutely. Of course, he's. Uh, look, I yeah. guarantee you, his military, his generals, whatever you know, his top people who advise him. Tell him, listen, the uh, the United States can come in here, take you out, and that'll be the end of it. They are more powerful. They are more. They are more. Um, you me, know, tech, no, they have no, more don't technology. Shoot me, don't shoot me. <laughs> I, 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 personally, I, I think that boy is shaking in his boots, and he's just trying to flex his muscles, man. I really do. I'm not worried about it. I think Donald, I'm sorry, today. Donald. Donald, I'm sorry. Dotard, I'm sorry. <laughs> Shit. 
I mean, he's uh, no, he's really shaken though. Zola, you're absolutely right. There's no doubt about it. He's scared. Of course to death. he is, man. Look, of course he is. You guys, I I, I just said this, but you got to understand, this is this is Kim Jong Un who crossed yeah. the border into South Korea. This has not yeah. happened in over 65 right. years. That's a big right. deal. That is not somebody doing that because they take Donald Trump as a joke. That's somebody right. doing that that says, holy shit, I don't right. have a choice here. Yeah, he might right. be he might be uh, slacking off now yeah. and talking shit and yeah. acting like a tough guy. Yeah. But he knows his place. He knows at the end of the day he will have yeah. this meeting with Donald Trump and he will denuclearize. He is scared. He would have never, ever yep. crossed the border into South Korea. Guys, this has never happened. People, you know, right. the media doesn't even talk about it. CNN talked right. about it for like an hour. This is one of the biggest yeah. things that's ever happened. Why do you think he did yeah. that? Because he just changed it. He had a change of heart and he's just a, a great guy now? No. He's yeah. scared shitless of the new president of the United States. So we got to keep that in mind. So I think right now yeah. it might seem like he's not serious, but he's scared. He's flexing his muscles. He's trying to set the narrative, trying to show off to China. It's not going to yeah. work. He knows that. Yeah. His time will be up very shortly. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, 100%. Um, you know, I really want to say what was really impressive today. Uh, President Trump uh, pardoned um, – World, you know, he was a, a world champion at one point. Boxer Jack Johnson, African American boxer that was, you know, basically wrongly convicted, and uh, you know, presidents in the past were supposed to pardon him, and uh, you know, it was long overdue. And uh, Sylvester, Sylvester Stallone, Lennox Lewis, and um, a bunch of, you know, a couple of boxers were in the Oval Office today while, you know, Trump did this pardon. And uh, it, was a, it was a really cool thing. And it was something that, you know, was um, unbelievably historic. I mean, this will go down. You know, this, this is something that uh, people have been asking for for a long time. So, big accomplishment. And he got no credit for it. Exactly. I know. Yeah. A, a, black, a black boxer pardoning. You would think Obama would have done it. People asked Obama to do it, and Obama never did it. Why, why didn't Obama do it? That's that's what I'm wondering. Well, well, wait. Not only that, where's the NAACP? Right. Yeah. Where right. Yeah. Where's the CBC? Why, where are they? Yeah. Where are? Where I thought, is I thought Trump was a racist. That's right. <laughs> this is the NAACP, by the way, refused. Yeah. Donald Trump asked to meet with them two times in 2016, but they didn't meet with him. They refused. Because they're racist and they're scumbags. And by the way, if Obama did this, the NAACP would be at the White House congratulating him, crediting, crediting him. But because Trump did it, not a peep from the NAACP. And look, listen, the NAACP is literally a congressional group that focuses on black issues. That is literally their purpose. Their purpose is not white people. Their purpose is not, uh, you know, you know, overall United States policy. Their purpose is for the for the better is for the better future for black people. Okay. The NW, and this was, a great, and this was a great noble thing that President Trump did, honoring a black guy, and 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 the NAACP was too 
ignorant and, and too stuck up to say, you know what? The guy deserves some credit. Really, really disgusting. Yes. Yeah. Uh, real, real, real quick, in case you're just joining us, I want to welcome our uh, special guest for tonight, lobbyist, best-selling author, and president of Families Against Mandatory Minimums, FAM, uh, Kevin Ring. Thank you for joining us, sir. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Good, uh, good to have you on. Um, in, in case you're just joining us, we were talking about uh, how historic uh, today was um, when President Trump uh, pardoned uh, boxer uh, Jack Johnson, uh, which was long overdue, and uh, many people were asking for it uh, for years for this to be done. And, uh, you know, President Trump uh, delivers once again. And, uh, you know, I saw the uh, video uh, online today. Sylvester Stallone was in the Oval Office, Lennox Lewis, um, and, uh, you know, uh, Jack Johnson's family, obviously, some of his family. It was just a, it was a, such a great uh, sight to see. And, you know, Obama was asked to do this before he left office, but, of course, he never did. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I saw the news, and, I, you know, I, I'm hopeful that the president uses his uh, authority even more. Exactly, exactly. And, um, you know, Kevin, I want you to, um, you know, tell the audience, uh, you have a long resume, you know, you've been in the business 30 years, uh, you've been in Washington, D.C. a long time, doing a lot of, you know, work, le- legislative, uh, you, do, you do lobbying, you do it all, you know, you, you've been, in, you know, you've been involved with a lot of things. Um, so tell us just about your back, it's very impressive, I want to hear all about it, and so does everybody else. Oh, well, thanks. Um, I actually, yeah, I came to Washington, D.C. 20-something years ago to law school. I worked on Capitol Hill. I worked for Republican congressmen uh, the whole time. I ran the Republican Study Committee, which was the largest congressional member organization on the Hill, um, made up of conservative Republicans. I then, when I got my law degree, went over to the Senate side and worked for then-Senator, future Attorney General uh, John Ashcroft, of Missouri as a counsel on the Constitution Subcommittee. It was during that time I started researching a book that I ended up writing about Justice Scalia called Scalia Dissents, Writings of the Supreme Court's Wittiest, Most Outspoken Justice. I I just did an updated version of that two years ago um, after his death. And um, during during that time – oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no. uh, Nobody said anything. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Okay. and so I was a, a counsel. I ended up leaving um, his uh, the, the the Senate and went to become a lobbyist. It was during that time as my lo- you know as a lobbyist, uh, I had been named the lobbyist, one of the top lobbyists for a couple of years. But during that time, our firm came under investigation, and I ended up uh, being charged with uh, public corruption charges. I fought the government through two trials, ultimately lost on some counts. I spent 20 months in federal prison. And came out, and as wow. I was fighting the government during that period, I started working at FAM, Families Against Mandatory Minimums. And when I came back out, I became the group's president. Wow, Jesus, whoa, what a, whoa. <laughs> back up for a little bit, back up for a little bit. Yeah. You, yeah. you spent how long in prison? 20 months. Uh, federal prison? Yes. And you did it, and, yeah, and this was, and they falsely, and this was basically for wrongly, you were wrongly convicted, correct? 
That's what I think. I wouldn't have gone to trial. Like I would have saved my family the heartache and millions of dollars to going to trial if I thought I was guilty. And um, and in fact, if my case had come after Bob McDonald's, the governor of Virginia, who ultimately went to the Supreme Court and won, if my case had come after that, they wouldn't have had all the charges they did because they knocked down that statute that they used against me. But um, no, no, I've been on the other side of a, of a pretty zealous prosecutor and it was during that time that, you know, I was fighting them. Now, I wasn't subject to a mandatory minimum, but I saw how much power prosecutors have, and I thought, geez, the last thing I would want is to give them the power to set the sentence by having mandatory minimums in place. And I started learning a lot more about people who were less fortunate than I were that were serving 20-, 30-year sentences for low-level drug offenses because of mandatory sentences. And so I just sort of got more committed to the cause, and I've stayed with it since. Very, very okay. Very impressive. Wow. So you know, now, now, uh, please describe to all of us, um, you know, families against mandatory minimums. Um, please explain. Yeah. You know, you're the pres- you're the president of the company. Uh, how you know when you started it? Obviously, we know why you started it because obviously you went through a circumstance that was, uh, you know, y- you felt you were wrongly convicted, and it was. You know, it was kind of a bogus situation, and you wanted to kind of shine light and help others, correct? Yeah, well, actually, the group had been has been around for 26 years. It was founded by a woman whose oh. brother uh, got five years in federal prison for growing marijuana in Washington State, which would be legal today. Um, and so I, but I worked there while I was going through my trials. And um, you know, the group works on sentencing reform, prison reform, other issues related to criminal justice reform. And really, as somebody who, you know, grew up in conservative politics, you know, it, it's our view on this is a real constitutional one, which is that we need separation of powers. I mean, we need prosecutors to, you know, decide who to investigate who to charge, what charges to bring, and all make recommendations about sentence. But at the end of the day, we have a judiciary for a reason, and that is, you know, to be an independent magistrate, to make decisions about, you know, what the right sentence should be, um, and, you know, and other things. And so we, do, we don't like mandatory minimums because we think it gives one branch too much power. Very well said. Very well said. Absolutely. Um yeah, uh, I know I have my, my co-hosts are on the line as well. I know they have questions. Zolo, I know you want to, uh, you know, chime in here a little bit. Yeah, well, I, I just want to say it must irritate the hell out of you that you went to federal prison before Hillary Clinton, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there's and, and then and then uh, Senator Menendez. Uh, uh, that was a good one. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Senator Menendez went to trial on the same type charges. In fact, my prosecutor ended up prosecuting him. And so, even though I have no love for Senator Menendez, uh, I was happy him. to see. Yeah, I was. I was happy to see him beat them. Um, yeah, no, it's 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 a crazy situation. And, my, and 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 mine was a case where there were editorials about it in the Washington Post and the rest because because I didn't plead guilty and cooperate. The government asked for 27 years for me. Um, even though people who cooperated against me got probation um, and no jail time, they asked for 27 years for me. And so ultimately my judge, you know, didn't go along with that. But, you know, I hate to say it, but until you get caught up in the system and you see this with people like Conrad Black and others, 
until you get caught and you see the power of the government turned against you, you just can't realize how distorted and perverse the system can be. It's tyranny. Yeah, I mean, it feels that way. You're going against the world's largest law firm, and you're an individual. And, you know, I had a young family. The government, even though I had tried to cooperate for two years and tell them everything I knew to be helpful, because that was just sort of my posture, was I don't have, I only have one story, and I'm going to tell it to you. When I didn't plead guilty and say the things they wanted, because not because I thought it would incriminate myself, I was, I was wanting to save my family, but they wanted me to implicate others who I thought hadn't done anything wrong, members of Congress, Republican members of Congress. When uh, I didn't do it, they raided my house at 7 o'clock in the morning with my two young daughters here, um, 15 FBI agents surrounding the house for, you know, really no reason. I had been sharing all the documents I could and everything, you know, I was an open book. I was cooperating. But um, it was a real intimidation tactic. I know how Manafort felt when he got his house raided. It's just, it's very uh, intimidating. I mean, that's that's definitely what, the, what they're trying to instill. How much of it would you say, I mean, or do you feel at all that it was because you're a conservative that you were targeted or or not at all? You know, I there were hints of it, um, but it's, you know, I, I don't want to, I, I really don't want to impugn anybody's integrity by saying that. I mean, I, I, I saw glimpses of it, and I, I also saw the way that your politics could be used against you in a trial, because even though it wasn't relevant at all, um, you know, the prosecutors in my trial were trying to turn a D.C. jury against me by making it clear to them that I was a conservative Republican. They would quote emails where I would talk about people being socialists. <laughs> um, they definitely wanted to inflame a D.C. jury that is largely liberal. Um, and so it was, it was really disconcerting to see that kind of tactic used. Well, I would say that I I don't, you know, obviously I didn't know about your case until you told told us about it. But the thing with me is when I hear about stuff like this or about, you know, campaign contributions, uh, campaign, you know, Ganesh D'Souza, you know, went to prison. And And I keep thinking, you know, all these people, you know, you have the one kid who took pictures on a submarine and he got in more trouble than Hillary Clinton. You know, I feel like Paul, you know, Paul Manafort might have done some shady financial stuff right. back in the day. But all these people are getting in all these trouble, all this kind of trouble. And the one thing I can uh, that I see from it is they all seem to be on the right. I mean, that I mean, that's a big deal. I mean, Loretta Lynch met with Bill Clinton on a, the tarmac yeah. the day before Hillary Clinton was found uh, innocent. I mean. All these people, people like you, a normal, regular guy, you know. I mean, you know. I guess your, you know, your your name's kind of out there more than more than mine would be. But you know, look at Michael Flynn. Look at all these people and everything that's going on. And the Democrats seem they just seem to not be able to get in trouble. They just seem untouchable, and and, and it's just it just sickens me. Yeah. No. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't know how to explain it. And. You know, of course, you know, I mean, for me, it was, you know, taking responsibility for my own actions and, you know, things, you know, I gave them fat to pinch and that's on me. But um, I, I, it just, you know, confirmed for me that, you know, the system is 
sometimes there is a feeling of, you know, you pick the person, you can find the crime, and that's scary because we have uh, the, the, you know, the Justice Department was asked to do a survey of how many federal criminal laws there are, or that the Congressional Research Service was, and they said there were over 4,000. They had to stop counting. And, you know, prosecutors have, you know, broad authority, and now we have so many federal statutes. We have regulations that carry criminal penalties. Um, this whole idea about over-criminalization, you know, the, the argument that, you know, people commit three felonies a day and they don't even know it. And so when you live in that kind of, you know, society where everything can be criminalized and you can be subject to that awesome government power, it's, you know, it's, it, there's definitely a lack of freedom. And I would say that, you know, so for conservatives, you know, they've, you know, they may be seeing it in the Manafort investigation. Donald Trump's learning a lesson about having 18 prosecutors with nothing but a mandate to try to get him. Um, but, you know, for other communities, they're seeing this, you know, uh, you know, they see this on a more regular basis. You know, I mean, they, you know, communities of, you know, I, I, if you're in an inner city and, you know, you drugs or whatever, I mean, whether they're innocent or guilty or not, or whether they're, you know, they have informants being used against them to entrap them or whether witnesses are being tampered with, I mean, no education, no resources. This kind of stuff, I think, has helped in other communities. And now in our country where we have 2.2 million people in prison and jail, it's starting to happen everywhere. Yeah, so I was going to ask, how do we go about fixing that? Like, what is the solution to, you know, the problem? Well, one thing is we just got to, I mean, it sounds like a bigger fix than when I say this in a structural way, but we've got to take some power away from prosecutors. Um, we just got to restore the idea. I, I mean, I know people think, you know, this is the old argument from those of us on the right about all oh, these soft judges every once in a while, you know, they get something wrong because they, you know, they gave somebody a slap on the wrist. Well, judges make decisions in an open courtroom, have to state their reasons, and they can be appealed. Prosecutors make their decisions behind closed doors with no oversight. And so... You know, I think people in this country, especially, you know, have a respect for order. We want crime controlled. And so we're willing to defer over and over whenever prosecutors say, I need this tool or I need that tool. And we give it to them. And our politicians do because they, you know, they think that's going to be popular. And we just got to, we got to think, you know, harder about that. Not everything that gets convictions, not everything that, you know, lengthens sentences, not everything that makes a prosecutor's job easier is in the public interest. And I think we just have to get away from thinking that's true. Wow. Right. Great answer. Absolutely. 100%. Uh, we have a caller on the line. Um, thank you for calling the Rory Sauter Show. Who am I speaking with? What's up? What's up? This is Josh from Ohio. How's it going, guys? <clears throat> hey, Josh. What's going on, man? Um, thanks for calling hey. in. Um, but – but Kevin, I want to get back to what what you're saying. It's um, you know, with with what <clears throat> with the power, corruption, and and the evil in Washington, it's it's they can get it's like they can get anybody on anything. It's I mean, we see what's going on with stuff like Michael Flynn. I mean, all these bogus crimes. I mean, you know, and you you dealt with it yourself. All of these, you know, you know, stuff regarding uh, you know, in the political. Uh, you know the, the the political realm, and it's it's unbelievable. It's like it's it's a huge swamp 
and we've seen, you know, like all of these people that have had to suffer and that have been innocent. And and it's, you know, there's so many different examples. And, you know, it's, it's, it's absurd. It really is. Yeah, no, and we've criminalized everything. We don't have any disputes. All of our political disputes end with, you know, claims or arguments that somebody should be in jail or, you know, I mean, it's just we, we just don't. And depending on who's in control, you know, uh, it happens or it doesn't happen. But we, we've just we put aside. Everything. I remember when back when Tom DeLay was majority whip in the U.S. House of Representatives and the Democrats filed a RICO lawsuit against him. I mean, that was Jesus. a racketeering suit because of campaign finance stuff and because of you know, the K Street project and trying to make sure that Republican lobbyists were getting hired and all that sort of stuff. It's just we don't. We, we, we've just turned to the criminal law for everything, and we've, you know, we've, we've. There's enough criminal statutes that if a prosecutor decides that you've done something wrong, they're going to find something. There's just no way about it. Or if, if you don't mind me, it, yeah, go ahead, Josh. Yeah, yeah so um, I actually uh, note uh, delay a little bit um, with some stuff we I've done in D.C. and just, you know, just hearing him talk about that, it's. It's it was it's just so interesting how like you just said like if if basically if a prosecutor wants to come after you you're gonna be they're they're gonna find some kind of dirt on you to yep. basically kick you out of whatever position it is I mean and that goes that goes for a lot of different industries and it's it's a it's a shame you know um, people well, go to prison for just you know doing whatever it is yeah well remember with delay um, the lawsuit in D.C. I mean the allegations that Alex that the Democrats filed went nowhere, but then right, he was ultimately charged down in Texas and, and you know, had to give up his seat. You know, he lost his career and he ultimately won. They threw it out through other charges, but it's the old Ray Donovan expression of former labor secretary. Where do I go to get my reputation back? By the time you fight it out, you've spent, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars probably in his case. And you, you're vindicated, but nobody knows, and you've already lost your career. And so, you know, you take somebody out, and then you apologize later. And Rick Perry, that happened to him, you know, bogus uh, suit down there that got thrown out. And it's just, it seems more and more that people are using criminal law to go after their political opponents. Absolutely. It's a shame. Yeah. And, that, and that's another thing about that is that, you know, we see, you know, you've worked on, you know, Capitol Hill. You know, how long would you say you've been in, working in the in the D.C. area and doing all this political in the political realm and all this work? Probably twenty, thirty years, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And so you've seen, so you've done, you know, lots of legislation. And and nowadays with your with your company, uh, you know, the the FAM uh, Families Against Mandatory Minimums. Um, are you doing a lot of legislation work? Are you doing a lot of different um, I know you're doing law. You're still doing the lobbying as well, right? Yeah, our organization does tries to change the laws. And look, I was on the I was on the other side of this issue when I was on the hill. When I was on the hill, and I was you know working as a counsel, I didn't have exposure to this. I, I mean, back then, you know, our side was all, hey, we're tough on crime. I mean, you know, we can't hammer people hard enough, and it's mostly, you know, things we didn't understand. Like I, I don't, I, I you know, I don't know what makes somebody you know, 
get a job selling methamphetamine or cocaine or you know what what people resort to these 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 people who do these things and i was happy to drop the hammer on them and 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 toe the line and pass laws that sent them away for long periods of time i had no idea i just i just thought that that was the answer and if prosecutors had made their job easier to hammer these people all the better you know and you know these long sentences the threats of them make people plead well now, having gone through this process and see why that happens, 97% of federal cases end in plea bargains because nobody can, can afford the sort of financial, emotional toll of, of, of fighting the government. Um, we've lost our jury right in this country. I mean, and if that's, if that's the number of trials that are going, you know, and the rest are just by plea deal, think about that. Um, but I was on the other side of this, and then when it was going through my process where all of a sudden I said – this isn't even a fair fight. I mean, you know, if you're innocent but don't have resources, you can't fight the government. You, you just don't have a shot. And think about how few yeah. trials you okay. see. You've seen some high-profile ones. John Edwards fought his. and I remember Roger Clemens fought his in D.C. You know, no one yeah. goes to trial anymore. And I had friends who were really law and order types I worked with on the Hill said to me, hey, Kevin, I don't, I don't think you did it, but just plead. Make it go away. And I just think what a sad commentary. Absolutely. Gee, wow. Wow. Um, Zola, I know you want to respond to this. Actually, I'm curious what uh, his thoughts are on um, the witch hunt against President Trump and uh, being waged by Robert Mueller. Yeah, I do Will, want to ask you, you about know, that, too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I got to say, you know, I don't, I, I don't know what, you know, I don't know what I don't know. And so I, I sort of want to respect that. I do think the problem is, and I'd like to see, I, I was glad to see one judge push back uh, when Manafort said, this is outside your scope. You know, you, you can't go after everything. And that's the thing. It's like 18 prosecutors with a mandate to just find what they can, that will never end, right? I mean, that, that doesn't end unless somebody says, this has to stop. Um, and yet... Because, you know, because he has enough opponents, you know, who's going to stop it? I mean, and, and so, you know, it, I think it is frightening. And I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know what the facts will bear out, but I do think, you know, we got to get away from this idea that the way to go after your political opponents is get a prosecutor and give them an unlimited budget and mandate and see what they find. Well, I also well, feel like that yeah. Robert, Robert Mueller is supposed to be looking at Trump campaign and, you know, Trump himself colluding with Russia, yet I feel like he's uh, indicting people for parking tickets, if you get what right. I'm saying. It, it, you know, yeah. everything he's charging with people or indicting people for has nothing to do with Russian collusion. I mean, this is out of control. And it, yeah. I, I used to say that Trump shouldn't fire Mueller uh, because it'd be bad politically. But now, I mean, after... You know, after everything that's gone on where Trump's lawyer is being targeted, it's just – it's getting out of control. No, and what I and, hate and about this too, real, frankly, real is – Real quick, real quick, yeah. Kevin, that goes back to what I was saying, you know, Zolo, you know, with what you just said uh, to Kevin about, you know, what they're charging these people with, that, you know, how D.C. can just get people however they want with whatever they want, and if they don't have something, they'll find something, or if they don't, or they'll twist your words, and then they'll get you. I mean, it's absolutely, it's beyond corrupt. It's 
It's a swamp. I mean, Trump defines it perfectly. But go ahead, Kevin. Sorry. Oh, no, no. I was just going to say the thing that no one will care about because, you know, the media circus is going to be focused on Trump and, you know, his family and the higher-ups is there will be so much what's considered collateral damage. You know, the, you know, people who are going to get shorter sentences, all these people on the periphery who, you know, again, these are these are not people that need, you know, need to be charged criminally and who's, you know, they're working at the White House or they have, you know, they work at a law firm that once represented Trump. All of a sudden they're hiring attorneys. They're going bankrupt to defend themselves because they're on the blast radius of this investigation. And, that, I mean, people just don't know how ruinous that is until you're on the receiving end of it. But people who otherwise would never fall under government scrutiny are just doing Michael so because – he had yeah. to sell his house. Yeah. No, it's it, it's now, people don't realize, and uh, it, it, it's it, it's just overwhelming. Now, now yeah. Kevin, now Kevin, yeah, so, oh, Josh, you had something today? No, it was me. Uh, but it's something. It's it's on topic, but it's not necessarily about Trump. But I'll just wait yeah, till go, after. Go ahead, Johnny. Uh, so I was going to say, all right. So after saying all this, you know, about the prosecutors and the law. Do you believe the sayings of the mass incarceration of minorities or, you know, black people? I personally don't believe it. I believe that blacks commit more crimes. But after saying all this about, you know, the prosecutors, do you believe that there is a unjust um, rule of law when it comes to mass incarcerations, you know, of minorities, especially blacks? Well, I think that can be overstated. Obviously, I mean, I, I, I mean, I think there's bias in our system because I think you know we all have biases, and and you know when people say, you know, that a judge will sentence a white person to a shorter sentence than a black person, there's evidence that shows that a judge will sentence a light-skinned black person less than a dark-skinned black person. I mean, there's just certain biases that we have, and all the rest. So, and I do. I think that extends to all sorts of decisions from police and 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 prosecutors' decisions and judges' decisions. I just think that's a human nature issue that we have to overcome, and you overcome that not by hiring angels, not thinking that people are going to be more moral or better than anybody else, but just having good processes in place to try to stamp right. that out. And so, to me, that's why you don't give a prosecutor too much power because you want to check his power because. You know, a racist prosecutor can do a lot more damage than a racist judge is ever going to do because the prosecutor is the one who's going to decide who to charge and, and you know, how much to sentence them. In terms of the racial disparity, I think in drugs, I mean, I think there's good evidence that, you know, African Americans use drugs at mostly the same rate as whites, but they live in communities that then get policed, and so you know, you're not going, you're not busting college campuses or suburbs. So I, I, I mean, I think that, you know, happens. I think the problem is that most people are concerned about violent crime, and there African Americans commit violent crimes at a higher rate. You know, murder, rape, and things that you know demand these longer sentences. So I think it exists. I don't think it explains the problem because I think over the course of history, there's a great book called Locking Up Our Own by James Foreman. You know, it talks about D.C. in the 60s and 70s, and African American politicians were just as willing as white politicians to pass these harsh mandatory sentences. So we sort of all had our hands on it. I don't think mass incarceration is a straight line from slavery to mass incarceration. I think there's a lot of things that have happened here that don't fit that narrative. All that matters is the result of you know, the reason we have 2.2 people in million people in prison is 
we you know we got addicted to incarceration as a solution to every problem and so whether you're white or black I, I that's not an issue to me what matters is we don't benefit when drug addicts get 20 year sentences when we could treat them or do other things send them to drug courts diversion other things that would save us money and allow us to focus on people that actually are dangerous so i think race actually gets i, I think it's important i think i think it matters in this discussion but I don't think it helps clarify this issue for people because ultimately our problem is punitiveness. It's not about, you know, if we're, if we're harsher to African-Americans than we are to whites or to, you know, Hispanics, that's not, you know, it's just a matter of degree there. The problem is that we're just punitive to everybody. Mm. Yeah, well, very, very well said. And please, that can was you, great, you great. know, can can you please um you know kind of specify if you don't mind um you know a little bit about you know what you what you did you know uh, about you know with regarding um you, you know they got you got you you know in trouble and got you into into, into prison yeah but what exactly happened what was exactly this scenario yeah yeah so I was a lobbyist and. My boss was a guy by the name of Jack Abramoff, who was... Hey, real quick. Yeah. Oh, Josh, are you back on? Yes. Yeah, I'm back. Okay, cool. Yeah, uh, Kevin, proceed, please. Oh, okay. So I, I worked at a law firm, and my boss was a guy by the name of Jack Abramoff, who was considered the big Republican lobbyist in, in Washington, D.C. And so I didn't really know him but I, at, at the time, but I got recruited to work there, and I was having a family, so I left Capitol Hill to go become a lobbyist, and I enjoyed that job. Uh, Abramoff was working some things on the side. He, had, he was, got, was getting in trouble for defrauding clients on the side. But when the government investigations happened, they started looking at our firm, and what they said was, we're going to use this investigation to change the uh, relationship between lobbyists and lawmaker. So the things that our firm was doing, things like taking staffers or members of Congress out to lunches or dinners or to ball games, things that most people would consider were lobbying, they decided that that was bribery. And so, we, you know, once you're in that soup and they start looking at your, you know, emails and all the rest, and they're saying, well, you wanted these things for your clients, and then you would do things with these people, and so that was bribery. And all that mattered was intent. I did all the things they said I did, but I wasn't seeking to exchange gifts for, you know, things for my clients. But to prove that, I had to go to trial because everybody else was pleading guilty. Abramoff was guilty of sin of other things, including tax fraud, so he pled guilty. And what they wanted me to say was that members of Congress that I had worked for and then lobbied later as a lobbyist, that I gave them things like meals and tickets, and if I didn't, they wouldn't have done things for my clients. And I couldn't say that. I didn't believe it. My relationship with them with them was such that that's not why they did it, but you have to go prove it. And the problem is if you're going to, in that position, and, you know, look, I, I want to be clear about something. They ultimately banned gifts from lobbyists to members. Of course they should have done that. There was no reason why it was legal for us to buy things for members of Congress. I mean, we could buy them cars or give them cash, but just even lunches or meals. That, I mean, they should have gotten rid of that because it does appear to be a conflict of interest. I, I mean, I, I get that, but we played by the rules as they were. And so I had to prove that I wasn't trying to bribe people, and 
you know, I, I don't blame a jury for sitting there thinking, well, you're not Santa Claus. You're not giving things away for, you know, because you're altruistic. You ultimately want to help your clients. And so that's what happened. The first jury in my trial hung on all the counts evenly. And so I thought I was done, and the government decided they were going to try me again. And so they tried me a second time, and I was convicted of half the accounts. And they were basically – it's called honest services fraud, but it's, it's, it's sort of like bribery. It's a junior varsity version of bribery, which said, you know, as I mentioned, that I gave things of value to these guys, and in return they did – they took official acts for my clients. And, you know, I didn't believe that then. I didn't believe it now. And so I tried to clear my name uh, through trial. And um, it took two trials and then appeals all the way up to the Supreme Court. And when I was sentenced to 20 months in prison, I ended up serving time in a federal prison camp in Maryland. And there's no, you know, people have this idea of club fed. And I was a white-collar first-time offender, and so I was going to be serving, you know, with other white-collar offenders. That's not what we have anymore in this country because of the drug war. So most of the people I served time with were sitting there for drugs and gun offenses. They were black and brown. And, you know, I mean, it was further opening my eyes to, you know, who were the people who were there. Because there were some people you wouldn't want to hang out with, but these were not people who needed 10, 20-year sentences. Here, quick, uh, quick question. This is Josh here. Do yeah. you think that um, do you think that eliminating or changing the way that first off that the drug laws are and or the way the the weight of the sentences would would change the way that first our prison sentences and second our country to, altogether? I uh, explain that. I'm assuming, What do you mean? How would how would it change what? So, so do you think that by changing the the way that drug crimes are looked at through the eyes of the law, um, do, either by legalizing drugs, legalizing some drugs, and or shortening sentences, do you think that that would change the way the prison system is as well as the way the country is just looking towards that issue? Yeah, yeah, and I, I you know, I we fam doesn't have a position on legalization, and 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 you know. That's not our fight. I mean, people, you know, I'm not saying drug, you know, people who sell drugs and use drugs, I'm not saying that's good behavior or I wouldn't want that for my kids and all the rest. The question is, you know, how are, we, how are we using resources? You know, I mean, how are we using law enforcement resources? Is that the best use of it? You know, like you got cities like Chicago and others that are clearing about 20% of their murders. Um, you got rape kits that go in untested. And yet we find the money to, you know, lock people up for these long periods of time for drug offenses. And I'm not saying they're not serious. It's just a question of priority. And so, no, I think we could have shorter sentences. I think you could still keep all of this illegal and still have shorter sentences and get the same return on investment. Because the thing is, the guys I serve with, I always tell people this, they're not deterred by longer sentences. The research is pretty clear on this, and I saw it firsthand. These aren't a bunch of Mensa members here. I mean, they, they, these aren't brainiacs who poured through the U.S. code and said, oh, if I sell five grams, I'm going to get five years, and if it's ten grams, I'm going to – that's not what they're thinking. They're just not thinking yeah. at all. They don't think they're going to get caught. And so, you know, longer sentences don't deter them. What we, what we know deters people is the certainty of getting caught and the swiftness of apprehension. 
I mean, you're more likely to deter crime if you have an extra cop on the street who makes it less likely for you to commit the crime. But the idea of, you know, just punishing somebody severely, that doesn't deter their behavior, especially in the drug world and especially if they're addicted. And when you take somebody off the street who's selling drugs, all you do is hire their replacement. I mean, the, the kingpin's going to find somebody else to distribute. I mean, it's not like they're going to stop their operation. So as a matter of just sort of public safety, we're not getting a lot for these sentences. And so I would serve with guys who were, you know, I, I, the, the stories I could tell of, you know, these were not deep thinkers. And so, you know, we have this idea, especially on the right, that everybody's this rational actor and that, you know, they're, they're, they're just attuned to incentives and disincentives and that, you know, behave, they behave accordingly. That's just not true. These guys just don't think. And especially when you're younger, uh, in the criminal mind, discounts future, right? So, like, if you, even if you did tell somebody, oh, it's going to be 10 years or it's going to be 15 years, they don't think that way. They don't think about the future in that way. They're stuck in a moment. They don't have long-term thinking skills. And, they, you know, they have impulse, you know, gratification, instant gratification. Um, and so, I, I, yeah, I think we could change these laws pretty easily and have no impact at all on the crime rate. And this is why I say to people, I debate federal prosecutors all the time. We have not had federal sentencing reform in 30 years. And when we say, you know, we need to change the laws, and they say, yeah, but we're in the middle of this opioid epidemic. And I said, whose watch did that happen on? I mean, if these laws worked, how in the world are we having our biggest over death, I mean, over, um, overdose death crisis? I mean, how, I mean, we have already mandatory sentencing laws against heroin and fentanyl and all of these drugs. So how did this happen under their watch? This is their regime in place. I mean, I, I don't know how we could do worse through reform than we're doing today. Oh, uh, wow, yeah. I mean, it's, and, and, here, and here's the thing about it. I, I, I wanted to ask you, very important and, and very well said. You're absolutely right. And I, I want to ask you about the political, uh, you know, the people that they wanted you to rat out, the people that they wanted you to yeah. kind of give up. Who who were these people? Can you name the names? Yeah. So one was, I mean, the the one that, that was most interested in was my former boss, a guy by the name of John Doolittle from Northern California. He was a congressman from California, had been a state senator, conservative. That was my first job on the Hill. Congressman Doolittle was like a second father to me. I mean, he was a mentor to me. I worked for him for a number of years. We stayed friends. Um, you know, I went to law school while I was working in his office. He had been a lawyer, um, and, you know, so he was really helpful to me and, and gracious and giving me time to study for the bar and all this sort of stuff. I knew his family, that our whole office was like a family. And um, later I lobbied him, and I would walk into his office, and, people, you know, he'd say, hey, you know, anything I can do to help, you know, I will. And he meant that as a friend, and, and, and that's how I took it. I mean, this, this is a guy, he, he didn't like Sports, so I didn't take him to, you know, entertainment things or anything like that. Um, I was friends with all his staff. I mean, you know, it's just like it's hard for people to know if you haven't worked on the Hill, but, like, once you've worked for somebody, you're, you're with them forever. Like, I mean, this is a friend of yours. I've raised money for him. I, I would have done anything for him. I'm friends with him today. We still get together, even after all of this. But they wanted me to say that I bribed him and that – and, and that he was bribed by me, and they wanted me to t testify against him and say, I gave him things, and he did things because I gave him things. No one who knew us believed that to be true. 
And so they threatened everybody who worked in his office ever and knew of our relationship and pressured all of them, and none of them buckled. No one would say that. And so, you know, I mean, he ultimately was never charged, and nobody in his office was charged. But because I didn't give him up, in their view, they went to hammer me. And so there were other members of Congress they wanted me to um, implicate who aren't even in Congress anymore. But it was just, it was so false, and as much pressure as they put on me, and I wanted to make this go away, you know, for me it was one of those things where you got to live with yourself. And I, I wouldn't have been able to live with myself if I said the things that they wanted me to say. Yeah, I mean, geez. Hey, so I had a... Yeah, I had another quick, just a real quick question. How often do you think, uh, this is Josh again, by the way, how often do you yeah. think that real br- dirty bribery, dirty lobbying happens on the Hill, and how big of a problem do you think it actually is? Uh, I'm so glad you asked that, and, and, and I, I'll respect that people will disagree with this. I think this is so overrated as a problem. I mean, I think like everything in this country, it's good to be vigilant about it. You know, this is like, you know, like children's health, right? Like like we have a school shooting, and we're like, oh, my goodness, our kids are, you know, are so dangerous. It's like, what are you talking about? They used to die in farm equipment 60 years ago, right? I mean, we didn't have child labor laws. It's like this is the safest time to be a kid. That's how I feel about our politics. It's not perfect. There's stuff that people don't like that's politics, but it is cleaner than it's ever been. I mean, the transparency rules, uh, the campaign finance rules, the press all over, um, you know, just, just uh, you know, 24-hour news service. I mean, you had things in the old days where, you know, like, you know, Daniel uh, Webster, you know, I mean, these guys were on the payroll of companies while they served in the, in the Congress. You, I mean, now... You know, if somebody gets a contribution, it could be point zero zero one percent of their total campaign, and if they take a vote that looks suspicious, they're like, oh, he was paid off. I mean, we're so hypersensitive to it, uh, and that's, like I said, that's fine, it's good, it's good for us to be, you know, cautious, but, I, you know, I didn't see the type of bribery stuff that they're talking about. I worked for somebody who was considered the most notorious lobbyist, and I didn't see that, the whole ab scam, you didn't see bags of cash trading hands and stuff. It's just not how it worked. And and like a lot of things, most times, just like NRA or Planned Parenthood, whichever side you're on, money follows votes. The members who come here, for the most part, are ideological. They have positions on these things that they ran on, and the money goes to them because of those positions. You don't give somebody money and change their position. That just doesn't happen. I just didn't see it like that. And, I, you know, the government didn't like hearing that, but you know, I, all I could tell them is from my years on the Hill and from being lobbyists, I didn't see that type of transactional behavior that that people, I think, think exists. Uh, yeah, I'm so happy to hear you say that, just because, so I'm, I, I personally have been, uh, I lobbied a little bit, probably I went to D.C. about um, six times last year uh, for a bill called the Heartbeat Bill, and just like I was with the very direct team of it, and and everybody's acting, and you know, it's, lobbyist is a dirty word now. Yeah. And just in my experience, it's like, no, I'm going to these offices, I'm talking to representatives in this case, and and we're exchanging ideas and talking policy. There is no, there was never ref- mention of dollars. What anybody, no. you know, anything like that. It's, it's, you know, people, when you want to believe something, you'll, you'll find examples of it. But if you be realistic, 100%. it doesn't happen, oh. you know, 
and it's and, yeah, and it goes into everybody. They think the they think the NRA is bribing these members to vote this way or that way. It's like no, they believe that before they ever got to the hill, and plus all their constituents think it that way. Why would they change because of money? Well, the NRA that's the biggest canard. I mean, these guys they they win because they have millions of supporters. They got voters. Everyone will tell you that it's not their money. They're not one of the biggest givers, and and you know the way our laws work anyway. Um, you know, it's like you raise, you know, somebody's, oh, he gave $5,000, $10,000. These guys are running two, $3 million campaigns. That is a tiny blip. And so you're right, though. It's like any connection they make, it can sound nefarious. They say, oh, well, he got this contribution, and then 10 days later he did it that. Well, what, it would have been better for his 20 days or one? I mean, like, you, you can, if, if you want to, you know, be a conspiracy theorist, you can run crazy with that. It's not that everybody's pure as the driven snow. I mean, you see members who, you know, Jesse Jackson Jr., who was using his look, look at that, look at that scandal. This guy, I mean, he was using his campaign money to to buy personal items and stuff. Yeah, that was wrong, and he got busted for it. He went to jail, but that's no threat to the republic. That was just greed. You know, you don't you don't have a teapot dome scandal. You don't have people selling out on massive scale. You know, selling their souls for for you know these campaign contributions or or favors. It's just, it's I don't know. There's there's something in our you know psyche with the common cause crowd and others that just are forever thinking our democracy is the cesspool and they want to get rid of private contributions and have public financing. And so, it's in their interest to make it sound like everybody's corrupt. And yet it's one of those things where everybody's corrupt, but nobody's corrupt, right? I mean, you have all these members come there and say, we have to clean up our system because it's so corrupt. Well, name somebody. I mean, who, who's corrupt? I mean, who, who do you have in mind? You know, they don't, they don't name their colleagues. They don't name anybody. So I, it, to me, this has always been, a, you know, a, a real overblown issue. And, and, and I think I saw it pretty close up. Yeah, I'm really glad to hear you say all that. I agree 110%. Yeah, very, very well said. And um, you know, is you know how how is the uh, the progress coming? You know, with uh, you know with what you're doing, and and uh, is, is it coming along well? Do you have a, do you have a lot of good stuff well, you're working it's, on? It's a tough climate. I mean, the Trump administration has you know provided some opportunities and some challenges. I was at the White House last Friday for a prison reform summit he had. Um, that Jared Kushner has taken the lead on yep. again. People with personal experience. And Van Jones. Yeah, Van Jones was there. I got. I met him. <laughs> um, I wouldn't expect to see all these people in one place. There was Van Jones and right. Candace Jones was there too. <laughs> um, but you know, if you've been in, impacted by it, you know you you see it differently. And Kushner, obviously, his father was in prison, and so he, you know he knows this. He knows the problems. Um, in the system, and he's pretty earnest and sincere about it, and and I appreciate that about him. And the president, you know, while he may not support some types of reform, um, he's on board with prison reform, and so we got to try to find make some progress. And that's the idea, which is not even about shortening sentencing, but it's just basically saying ninety, you know, more than ninety percent of prisoners in the federal system are going to come home someday. And so the question is, do we want to come home in better shape or worse shape than they went in? And when I was there, I saw a lot of guys just sitting around doing nothing, not a lot of educational opportunities, not a lot of job training opportunities. Look, I was going to be fine. I mean, I, you know, I had, a, I had a house when I was going to come home, and I knew I was going to go back to FAM. But some of these guys, you know, they weren't going to have things. And they could have used that time instead of being warehoused. 
you know, they're the, literally a captive audience. This is your chance to improve them. And they would have taken those opportunities. And so Trump is talking about, you know, making sure they do have job training uh, so that when they got there, make sure they do get their substance abuse treated while they're there because there's no sense not treating an addict. So I think he's on the right track. It's not everything I'd like to see, but it would be progress. The Federal Bureau of Prisons is a total swamp. It needs training. And I appreciate the president's doing this. And, you know, the fact that he is so tough on crime in other ways, I think this is a real, uh, you know, Nixon goes to China moment. I think if he keeps at this, he could get something done because people wouldn't expect it, and he'll give cover to everybody else. Very well said. Very, very well said. And um, so, you know, are you, you know, what what is your whole, what, what is the whole objective, you know, at this point, you know, with, with your agenda um, on what's your list, like what's your um, – what are your goals? Like, what are your what are your objectives for yeah. uh, in terms yeah. of uh, you know projects you're working on now? Like, what do you, uh, you know, what are you what's going on? Sure. Well, because things at the federal level are a little tough, we're working in a lot of states. Um, so we're yeah. you know we're working in you know that's what we're trying to do. We're in Arizona. Right. We're going to be in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, yeah. I live in Arizona. Florida. Phoenix. Yeah. Yep. And so, um, so we're going to really so look to uh, repeat the places yeah. one more time. Sorry. Arizona, Pennsylvania, Florida, um, and we'll okay. probably be in a couple other places, but we haven't picked all of our targets for next year. We're obviously going to work at the federal level, but in these states where we think we can make some progress, we're going to, you know, we're going to try to change sentencing laws, prison policies, try to reduce, yeah. you know, the incarceration rate. But really, it's it's not just about reducing incarceration rate. That's important, but it's what goes with that. We're just going to try to make sure that people who get in trouble and who need to be held accountable get treated as individuals through every stage of the process at sentencing when they go to prison if they do go to prison make sure that they get programming and treatment that's you know ones that they need get job training if they can education while they're there you know so it's just it's just about this basic platform of um you know trying to stop this revolving door we have of, of people going in prison, coming out, and going back because they're no better than when they went in. And, uh, you know, Kevin, um, you know, it, it's uh, that's awesome, man. And, and you bring up Arizona, um, you know, you're going to be doing a lot of stuff down here. That's awesome, man. And uh, I'm, um, you know, Sheriff Joe, uh, America's toughest sheriff, Sheriff Joe Arpaio, is a really good friend of mine, and um, I'm helping him a lot with his can- Senate campaign. He's running for U.S. Senate. He has a really good chance of winning, and uh, you know, I uh, he um, he has a lot of uh, insight on on this stuff too. Uh, if you're ever down here, man, you can give me a ring, and uh, yeah, I can inter- introduce you if you're a, if you're a fan. Well, you know, he's 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 old school a little bit. You know, I mean, he he you know. He, he has no problem with, the, with with sending people away for long periods of time, and so, uh, you know, I hope that, you know, I mean, he got his pardon, and he knows what it's like to, you know, have people come after you, and and I I hope that maybe he changes his view somewhat on that because, you know, it really, I, we got to get out of that mindset, and and and, and again, it, it's not because I think drug use is good and drug selling is bad, or I mean, I, I, you know, drug selling is something people should do and all the rest. I just think we've got to be smarter about our punishments. That's all. we just got to, you know, we we can't throw people away. And, you know, he's been pretty tough on stuff. I, you know, I hope he's, I hope he's, you know, open to, open to 
change, especially now that he's been through this system. I just want to ask a question real quick. Um, so I'm, uh, I used to use uh, heroin, for example. I'm, I'm clean for a couple of years, so don't worry. But oh, congratulations. I, I, thank you. And, by the way, it was my choice. Solo, is that you? Else's. Yes, it's me. Okay. It's my choice, not anyone else's. I'm not blaming anyone else. But when you say about drug dealers, I mean, uh, I'm just saying right now with what's going on with the opioid epidemic, I mean, some of these guys really got to go away that are selling this shit. I mean, wouldn't sure. you agree with that? Sure. Okay. No, no, no doubt about right. it. But, I mean, but you know, the, what you sometimes hear people say is like, oh, you know, I, I think we can, you know, be a little more tolerant of the addicts, but we got we to gotta hammer these dealers. And you probably know this. Uh, sometimes they're the same people. I mean, sometimes you've got people selling to afford their addiction. And so it's not always a bright line between somebody who sells or somebody who just is a user and somebody who's a, you know, who's a dealer. Yeah, kingpins, people who are just in it for the profit, absolutely. Some of those people don't even use drugs. They're just, they're, they're just trying to make money you know, illegally. I have a lot less sympathy for them, yes, no doubt. But I, but I think, and I know from cases we've profiled in Arizona – we're sending some people away for long periods of time whose even their crimes when they were selling were driven by their own addiction. And I think we got to be smarter about that. Well, I understand if they're, if they're using it as well, but uh, for, for instance, um, I think it was in uh, Pennsylvania recently, not recently, but it was probably last year. Sorry. But there was a group of dealers. Uh, now I can't say if I know they were using or themselves or not, but they right. uh, actually put rat poison, uh, little bits of it, into the heroin, and they actually killed seven people. And after the first two people died, they kept going. So would you agree that those people should go away for a really, really long time, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's, okay. that's, all right, yeah. I, just wanted to, I just wanted to make sure. Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah, and all, and all I want is, you know, even in those cases, even the worst case you can think of, not even a drug dealer, think of a violent offender, I just want individualized justice. I want, to know, I, I want to know what that person's motive was. I want to know what their role in the offense was, even if it was a large conspiracy. Were they the lookout man or were they the kingpin? Were, you know, are we talking about El Chapo or somebody who collects money? And all of that matters to me, and it should matter to everybody. Um, because those things are relevant to somebody's blameworthiness. It's also relevant to whether they can be rehabilitated. And so it's never that, you know, a matter of accountability. And people can disagree ultimately about what the, you know, the final punishment should be. I just don't like when we put people in boxes and we say, well, you were all members of the same conspiracy that sold, you know, two kilos of drugs. So you're all getting 20 years because of that. Because not everybody's the same in that. No, that's fair. I, I understand what you're saying. I, I was just just because um, I uh, have experience with that, and I yeah. have. And by the way, again, I want to clarify: no one held me down and made me do this. Okay, I went to the dealers, but I have met some of these guys, and these guys, man, if you don't have some of these guys, if you don't, if you're five dollars short, I mean, they will pull a knife on you. They are, you know, some of these people. So I just wanted to clarify with that. But I understand what you're saying, and I agree with. Uh, most of what you're saying. So I just I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah, no, 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 I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Hey, Kevin, hey this is um, Josh again. Uh, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Josh, real go quick, ahead, and then we gotta we gotta wrap it up with yeah. Kevin. Uh, we got another yeah, no, guest I'm coming on. 
No, all I wanted to say was I don't know if uh, Ohio is on your radar for a possible state to pick. Um, yeah. But if it possibly is at some point, uh, I yeah. would be more than willing to help out in any way I possibly could because this is something I think is a big problem, and I think you're addressing it. So I would be totally willing to give time away to move this forward. Uh, I appreciate that. Oh, I was just out at the University of Toledo uh, Law School. I spoke there, and I spoke to the library, a community event there. And people were asking, oh, you know, come out there. We we don't have the resources to go everywhere, and there's some other groups fighting there. But definitely some problems in Ohio. Uh, and there's another state that's getting really hit hard by the opioid de- epidemic. Um, Very hard. Their laws, you know, their laws aren't really working for that. So, yeah, we, that may be a state we go to at some point. I appreciate your offer. No, 100%. I appreciate what you do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Kevin, Kevin, you've been an amazing guest. You've had you Thank for you. Uh, about an hour, and, uh, you know, you've, you've, you've said us a lot of things. I mean, there's so much uh, that we didn't know that, uh, you know, we, we, we found out that, uh, you know, you lived a hell of a life. I mean, uh, a resume, you know, a novel of a resume. I mean, it's, uh, it's incredible. There's a book in some of the adventures and mountains you've, you've, uh, you know, just all the mountains you've climbed and all the adventures you've been on. It's, uh, it's, it's very interesting. And, uh, you know, all the insight, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate the time and I'm glad to get the message out and I appreciate the questions. Yeah. And Kevin, I'd love to have you back on the show, uh, soon and, uh, anything you want to announce, anything you want to say, uh, go ahead. Uh, any, uh, well, just that we're going to be rolling out more. Uh, I mean, one thing we think we need to do is, you know, to win these battles, you need troops. And so we want people to join up, especially if they've been affected by the system and they have stories to tell and or their family of, you know, or they have loved ones in prison and, and, and their families who are hurting because uh, their strength in numbers. And so, you know, even on our Facebook page, we have a closed families group where people share information, provide a lot of support to one another and good information. But people should come to our website, which is www.famfamm.org and get more information. Excellent, excellent. And my audience will definitely do that. And, um, uh, sir, uh, really a pleasure. Everybody, Kevin Ring, uh, lobbyist, best-selling author, and president of Families Against Mandatory Minimums, FAM. Uh, thank you, sir. Uh, have a great night, and uh, we'll have you back on very soon. Okay, thank you. Take care. All right, man. Cheers. Take care. All right, everybody. Kevin Ring, great guest, fantastic guest. Um, he uh, definitely uh, gave a lot of great information, I'll tell you. Um, very, uh, very exciting stuff. Uh, and definitely the the road he's been down. I mean, he's been through a lot of, uh, you know, different things. Um, what, a, what a story, though. What a story. Uh, shortly, we will be having um, – political strategist, activist, and popular talk show host Josh Bernstein be calling in. He has a bunch of new things to reveal. Uh, He has a bunch of new information from his sources in D.C. about breaking news um, with a lot of the uh, major headlines today. And uh, we always like hearing from Josh uh, because he gets a lot of the secrets. So in a few minutes, we'll be hearing from him. Um, Zolo, you on the line? Josh, you on the line? The other Josh? Josh is here. <laughs> How you doing, buddy? Hey, it's well. Dude, I tell you what, that Kevin was fantastic. Um, I I haven't heard 
really that side of the story, especially with his personal experience. And that, that was just incredible. What a great, great find by you. That, that had to be pretty awesome to listen to for all the listeners. Um, you know, it's just a, it's a piece of the story we don't normally get. Um, that it, you know, and it, 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 it talks about a real problem that doesn't, is never talked about. Um, so fantastic job by you and, uh, boy, Kevin was really on top of his stuff. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know what, you know, what a life he's led. Like I said, it was, uh, it was definitely a, a great interview and, and a, he was a great guest and, uh, definitely we'll have him back on soon. Um, yeah, just, you know, and all the experience he has, I'll tell you, you uh, he, um, ha- has been around the block. Uh, that's for damn sure. I'm just glad he clarified his stance on drug dealers because he was, he kind of got me worried when he said Joe Arpaio likes to sentence people to a long time with like drug dealers. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like these, this shit is killing people, man. I'm, I'm glad you, clarified. I'm glad you kind of took over there so low. Cause I just, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't really, yeah, I wasn't, uh, yeah, I wasn't going to respond to him. Because you know. I gotta say, like, he, even though he did clarify that, like, you know, big yeah. dealers, look, man, I didn't go to like these yeah. massive, you know, kingpins. Okay, I went to fucking street right. people. These people are right. fucking thugs, man. Okay, and they're killing people. And I, um, right. I didn't really get too into it with Kevin, but uh, those people need to go away for a long time. And Joe Arpaio uh, is right when he sent those people away for a long time. This shit is no joke, man. It's real shit. People are dropping like flies. I lost many, many people in my life. And uh, you don't need to be a kingpin to be a bad, bad dude. You know, you can be a street guy who walks around with a gun who will shoot somebody over $5, even though that addict has given them maybe $500 in the past two days. These are, these are heartless, uh, soulless thugs and and i really don't give a shit about their their backstory how they grew up in a bad area i really don't care because they know what they they're selling and again everyone uses on their own so i'm not saying they're strapping people down and making them buy it but some of these people are cutting the shit purposely to get more stuff for them to sell and and they're poisoning that shit heroin's already bad and now they're putting in fucking fentanyl they're putting in rat poison and people when I say people are dropping like flies, uh, I, I'm not exaggerating. I'm being being quite, quite serious. Oh, oh, absolutely. Without so a they, doubt. So those people, anyone, anybody involved selling heroin needs to go away for a long time. And um, I, I appreciate everything he was saying. You know, don't get me wrong. I agree with the guy on 90% of it. Um, yeah. but, but when it comes to drug dealing, in, in my point of view, Okay, just because I lived that part of, you know, he lived his part where he, you know, had to deal with crazy prosecutors. Well, I lived the life dealing with drug dealers, and these are these are bad dudes. And he's right that some of them use it, but many of the ones that I went to never use a drug in their life. They might have smoked some pot, but uh, they are bad, bad people, and they need to go away for a long time. So I just hope that, you know, he's not talking about people that are selling drugs that aren't kingpins, you know, oh, they don't need to go away that long. No, they need to go away for a very long time. That's all I'm, that's all I'm saying on that. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah, how much, 
Go ahead, Josh. How much time do we have before the next guest? Because I don't know how much we want to start flushing this out. Um, he's supposed to come on in the next couple minutes. We're, we're still getting in touch with him. Um, he he, he gotcha. usually comes on every, every week and gives us a bunch of updates from D.C. So, um, But go ahead with, with what you're saying. Yeah, well, I just want to ask Zolo a question real quick. Just do you, So something I really agree with what Kevin said was when he said that he thinks that we, when we put these drug dealers away, someone's going to come and re- take their place, which I think, which I think we both agree on. I, I guess I would be interesting. How do we stop people from wanting to sell drugs? Is my, in my opinion, is the key because if no one's selling it, you can't. I mean, obviously, there's gonna there's always gonna be people selling drugs as long as it's illegal. Is you know they're gonna go around whatever. But how do you how do we stop people from selling them or like wanting to sell them? Um, I mean, I look. I don't look. I I don't have the answer to that. You know, I I, I think that 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 people, uh, you know, have to be responsible for their own lives and, and always people are going to sell drugs, but I'm just speaking from a point of view of personal experience where, uh, I went to a guy, for example, uh, every day, every day I was giving this guy everything I had. This guy was making money off me and the guy pulled a knife on me and put it to my neck. So, so because I was short, uh, $7. So whether or not, you know, he goes away and then someone else takes his spot, I, I understand that. But that doesn't matter to me. That, that, they, these, that person that I dealt with, he needs to go away for a long time. And, and I know there's a lot of people out there that say, oh, well, you know, he grew up in a bad area. You know, he didn't have a dad. I don't care, man. These, these people, again, I take full responsibility for what I did, okay? No one forced me to do it. But when, but when you're cutting shit, I ended up in the hospital, and they found they found all types of, of, of chemicals that wasn't just heroin in my body. So they're purposely cutting shit. It's not like these people, you know, are, 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 are you know, just putting the right amount of heroin in so it doesn't hurt anybody. They want to put the maximum amount of shit to get people very screwed up so they come back. And I understand that. That's what drug addicts want. But at the end of the day, people are dropping like flies, man. This is not weed. This is not even cocaine. This is heroin. This is this is sixty thousand people died from opiates last year, and you know I'm just it's just from a personal thing, so I don't know how to get them to stop selling. But the ones that get caught and the ones that I've dealt with, man, they they are they are thugs, and they ought to go away for a long time. That's all I'm saying. All right, well said. I want to welcome I want to welcome to the show our special guest, um, the Josh Bernstein, host of the Josh Bernstein Show political activist, political strategist, popular talk show host. You can find his show on Amazon, Hulu, YouTube. He's all over the Internet. He's doing very well. How are you, Josh? You got a lot of updates for us. What's going on, buddy? Not too much, not too much. Good to be with you. It's great to be with you. Um, There's obviously a lot going on. Um, You know, first of all, um, I I, want to get to the Kim Jong-un thing. But I want to talk to you first about how President Trump did the financial world, the financial industry in this country a huge favor today with abolishing Dodd Frank. I mean, we all remember when Obama put this policy into place, it totally let the large banks take advantage, and these small banks basically suffered and basically had to take a hike 
And it really affected a lot of businesses, affected our economy, affected a lot of people. Obviously, this this was a part of the collapse. Um, you know, but th- there's so much uh, re- relief in uh, you know President Trump, uh, you know, putting putting forth this uh, today. Uh, but your thoughts on this? And I know you have some inside information on this. And you know, um, this is this is a big thing. This is huge. This is great. This it's awesome. It really is. Uh, your thoughts? Yeah, it is, and uh, this has been a long time coming. Uh, this is something that uh, they've wanted to do now for a while. They've been talking about it, but I uh, haven't really had a lot of action on it, so it's really nice to see that it's happening now. Um, it's just another uh, thing that we've been able to reverse, thankfully, uh, from the horrible eight years of Barack Hussein Obama, and uh, <laughs> I think it's great because what it will do is it will open up lending, uh, it's not going to necessarily put businesses in danger for not having regulations and things like that. But what Dodd-Frank initially did is it was like an albatross wrapped around a business owner's neck. And if they wanted to expand their business or if they wanted to become a, a good, solid startup, they needed capital and they couldn't get capital because the Obama administration didn't care about the little guy. They only cared about the big banks and they were, you know, they were socialists, so they wanted to revolutionize and and uh, collectivize, if you will, the big banks of uh, of America and, for that matter, the world. But certainly, the big banks in America. They used the financial crisis uh, as a tool more than anything else to get these banks under the government's control. Uh, it was an absolute socialist, communist type of move and grab. And thankfully, we are undoing that. And uh, again, you know, less regulation for the private marketplace is better for business and entrepreneurship. Uh, we have to have some regulation, but not to the extent of what Dodd-Frank was. So uh, it's a great development, and uh, it's wonderful to see it being put forth. Absolutely, 100%. And it's, um, you know, it, it's a good day in America because you, you get all this economic growth back and you get all of these small businesses flowing and, and, and on a, on a good path again. And, you know, they didn't have that sort of, um, uh, you know, leeway and leverage, uh, like they will now. And, uh, this is big for the mortgage industry. This is huge for the real estate industry. Um, you know, this, there's so many positives and it's just such a, such a big day. Um, you know, I, uh, I really want to, you know, get into, um, asking you about this whole, you know, the FBI informant situation. You have a lot of inside information about this. Uh, there are people spying on the Trump campaign. Uh, we know that. Uh, and as of now, uh, James Clapper has admitted that there uh, was multiple spies in the Trump campaign, and others have admitted there's now uh, multiple spies, not just one. So right. this, is, makes water, this makes Watergate look like chopped liver. This is ridiculous. <laughs> Well, look, there's no question this has been a witch hunt from the very beginning. Uh, You know, you've got 16 people, prosecutors, on Mueller's witch hunting team. Thirteen of them are Democrats. Three of them are unaffiliated um, or independents. But there's absolutely not even one Republican on his witch hunting team. So that ought to tell you everything you need to know about this, uh, this operation and what they've been doing. I think it's unraveling. I think that we're starting to see... Uh, the deep state being, uh, you know, uncovered and exposed. They're panicking. Uh, I think that uh, the IG report uh, is going to show um, that uh, 
John Brennan and James Clapper also had a huge pivotal part in the uh, 2016 campaign spying. Um, I was hoping that we were going to have a release of the IG report tomorrow morning, but, uh, you know, because normally that's what they do uh, on a weekend, a Memorial Day weekend would have been a perfect time to drop really bad news that they don't want the American public to read and know about. But with President Trump ordering the Department of Justice to look into and have uh, Michael Horowitz continue his investigation into spying, it's going to take a little bit longer. I don't expect it to drop tomorrow. Um, I would say mid-June, if not the beginning of July, actually, before we see it. And for the folks out there that think that the Michael Horowitz uh, investigation isn't going to have any teeth or isn't is going to be just for show, let me explain something to um, the folks that don't know. In Barack Obama's administration, he was under investigation quite a bit from Fast and Furious to Solyndra to the uh, – IRS scandal, to the AP scandal, to Benghazi, to the email scandal. There was a ton of scandals. I mean, nothing – I mean, uh, seriously, uh, Donald Trump's administration is squeaky clean compared to the how many investigations that were underway um, with Barack Obama. And here's the thing, and I don't think too many people know that. Do you know that Barack Obama never, ever faced a special counsel – in all of those investigations, not one special counsel was appointed because the Republicans were too afraid of doing it because they didn't want to be seen as racist. That's an absolute 100% fact. Now, let's get back to Michael Horowitz. Michael Horowitz, when he was appointed in 2012, before that, the IG position used to be a position in which if you wanted to investigate a crime, you could just demand the – emails, the chains, the communications, the papers, the whatever it is for your investigation. Well, what happened is uh, Eric Holder and Barack Obama changed the rules after all of these inquiries came in for all of these investigations. They said, boy, we better be careful here. And what they did is they changed the rules to make the IG have to request information. Instead of demanding information, now the IG had to request information. And so what happened is they were able to slow down these investigations. They were able to stonewall these investigations and in a lot of cases completely ignore these investigations. So what happened is when Michael Horowitz came in, he wanted to get the rules back to the way that they were before him. And they were, um, they were saying that they didn't want to do that, and they were pushing back against it. So what he did is he wrote a scathing letter to the House Judiciary Committee, and at the time – Still with us? Looks like we might have lost him. Yeah, he must have disconnected. He'll have to call right back in. But uh, he, was, he was making really – he was on a roll right there. I wanted to listen to everything. I wanted to hear the rest of what he had to say. Jesus, he just went – all of a sudden, it just went silent. Yeah, we did lose him. He'll call right back. Yep, call dropped. He'll call right back in. Uh, in the meantime, we have a caller on the line. Let's see who it is. Hi, gentlemen. It's Mike from New York. I'm listening in, and the show sounds great. I wish I had called in earlier. Hey, Mike. How you doing? Mike from New York. How are you, buddy? Uh, Thank you. Thank, uh, thanks for listening. Right? First time listener? 
Oh, no, no, no. I've listened before to you guys, and uh, he was making a lot of sense on things. I think I called in before once. But uh, I'd like to know what his take was under Obama with the A76 circular, which is the White House circular that Obama suspended all A76 cost studies every year that he was in office. Schumer played a part in that. That's the study that says that the federal government will not comp- compete with the private sector for goods and services. Because I'm a, I'm a government contractor. That affected us directly. When they, you talk, and people don't understand this. They don't, so it's nice to hear what he was saying. It was great hearing him he did a and, actually, and actually talking about the Dodd-Frank and the attitude of Obama's administration towards small business. I, I remember Hillary and remember the rest of them all saying, you didn't build that? Well, as a matter of fact, yes, we did. Small business did build to help build this country. So um, it was pretty frustrating during that administration. It was uh, not a good time. No, definitely not. I mean, there was a lot of setbacks for uh, small businesses and for you know a lot of a lot of small banks. I mean, a lot of the large corporations, you know, took over. Um, yep. You, you know, it, and you it know what was, I was, uh, I was, I was wondering if there was part of uh, Operation Chokehold, if uh, that had anything to do, because they were going after the credit unions and small loans, uh, also that they uh, under Holder that they batched in with porno and uh, gun anything fi- firearms related, where they wanted to shut down uh, credit card companies that were dealing and processing their credit cards, uh, banks. Uh, to get them to stop dealing with the firearm industry and stop dealing with some of the credit unions and everything out there for small loans. I was wondering if that had something to do with it. And I thought Trump did away with that, but apparently not. Yeah. If you look yeah, at that it, Operation Chokehold. Josh, are you still on the line? I, what's Josh you talking about? I, I'm still here. Josh Abadi. Yeah, 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 man. Um, yeah, you're still there. I, I don't know what happened. All of a sudden, his phone's off now. I just had the, the studio try to call him and try to call him to get him on, and his phone's off. He, he must have had a low battery or something. I don't know what's going on. Um, something. I, or he's having bad connection. Something. We'll, we'll definitely pull him back on here soon. Can you? Everybody can hear clearly, right? I mean, it's not. There's no bad connection on your end. No. No. It sounds totally good here. Fine here. Okay. Yeah, I you know, he was getting to he was making he he was talking about the whole, you know, the FBI informant thing. Oh, here we go. Uh Mike Zolo's getting back on the line. Uh let's get him back on. All right, I'll I'll mute myself. Real quick. No, stay you can stay on. Mike from New York, you can stay on. Zolo, are you on? I'm here. I'm on. Okay, you're back. All right, buddy. We yeah, we um we lost uh Josh um Bernstein. Uh he just all of a sudden he cut out. We don't know what happened, so and his phone's off now, so um, he'll probably call back in before the show's over. Um, but I do want to continue on. Um, great news today. Uh, Harvey Weinstein will be surrendering to New York authorities for his sex crimes. The pervert will finally pay for what he did. Um, the fat slob got I mean, that guy is a slob, man. I mean, imagine him taking off his bathrobe and drugging you and, I mean, oh, God, man. Can you imagine what some of these women had to go through? Actually, he it's did a like lot of work. It's like the job of the hut scene. Yeah, exact, <laughs> ex- exactly. And let's talk about Morgan Freeman for a second. 
Let's talk about Morgan Freeman. I mean, this is absolutely ah. nuts. I, w- I wake up this morning, Morgan Freeman is accused of sexual misconduct by eight women. By eight women. I mean, I, I out of all 12. people, out of all people, out of all people, Morgan Freeman is one of the last people I thought this, was, this would come out and, and happen to. And, you know, it's ridiculous. It just goes to show it can happen to anybody. It, it can happen to anybody. We don't know who's next, you know, like who, who's the next Morgan Freeman victim. Um, Josh, well, are you actually, back on? I am back on. I don't know how much of that you heard, but apparently we got cut off. Uh, yeah, we, lo- we lost you for like four, five minutes ago. Um, I don't know what happened. It cut off. Yeah, I'm not sure. So how much of what you heard uh, would, I, would I need to fill in? Um, we heard, I mean, we heard a lot of what you said. Um, you were talking about, um, the people that were being indicted, um, the people you were, you were going into detail just about the informant stuff of, of what, you know, Obama got away with, how he was a protected, so protected, um, all that, all that stuff. You were kind of, um, you talked about a bunch of different okay, stuff. Okay. So but, uh, yeah. I, I was able to get a, across the part where I talked about the uh, Inspector General Empowerment Act and how Michael Horowitz got his power back after it was taken from him. You you heard all that, I, I suppose. The Michael Horowitz, you brought up Michael Horowitz. Um, that exact, explain that again, right, right there, real quick. Sure, real quick. Um, when Obama was getting bombarded with all these investigations from – Oh yeah, we remember. Yeah, Lindgren he didn't, he didn't get a special counsel. Yeah, I remember you said that. Yeah, we we heard that. He didn't part. get a special counsel. Number one, but what he did is he had his Justice Department and Eric Holder change the rules so that the Inspector General was not allowed to demand information on investigations, and instead right. had to request information. Keyword being request rather than demand. So what happened is it stonewalled all of those investigations. So what happened is once Michael Horowitz became the IG, he wanted those powers to be restored, and the Obama administration said no. So what he did is he reached out to – in 2014 when the House Republicans took over, he reached out to them and wrote a letter explaining what happened. And then Jason Chaffetz introduced legislation called the Inspector General Empowerment Act of 2016 – which restored all of the IG's power that the Obama administration stole. And so what happened then is Barack Obama signed it into law because at first he threatened to veto it, but we had enough votes on both sides of the aisle to overcome the veto. So he was a lame duck duck president and had no choice and signed the legislation which restored all of the inspector general's powers. So the reason I was explaining that is because I think Michael Horowitz wants revenge against Barack Obama and what he did to neuter him when he was trying to do all those investigations. This is an opportunity now for Michael Horowitz to exact revenge. Well said. And, and, and you know, real, real quick, I wanna I wanna get your take um, on what what the outcome? I mean, you know, we've already, you know, you've already, uh, you, you come on, you came on last week and said who who you predicted who's going to jail, you know, uh, you know, in terms of involved with this, uh, you know, the FISA and the, the fake Russia dossier. I mean, there's there's a lot of people that are going to be paying for what for what they did with this whole fake investigation. 
Um, but, but your thoughts, uh, real quick, I, I want to get a few things. Um, but the Kim Jong-un scenario, I, you know, you have some inside you know, yeah. information on that. I want to I know your thoughts on that, the, the canceling of the meeting today. You know, I, we've talked about it at the beginning of the show a little bit. Kim Jong-un, in, in my strong opinion, and many others, uh, doesn't really have a choice. Eventually, he's going to have to cooperate with President Trump if he wants anything right. or any sort of deal with the U.S. or, or any, anything he's whining about because he's not going to get it by making these petty threats. Exactly. And by the way, this was what Trump did. This was textbook art of the deal, knowing when to pull away from a negotiation to make the other side yeah. sweat. That's exactly what Trump just did. He took control yeah. over the situation because they were basically saying, well, we're threatening to cancel here and there. And Trump said, no, 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 no. You're not threatening to cancel. We're taking it from you. So it was a brilliant move. Uh, it was a smart move by the Trump administration and the president because it showed strength, not weakness. Now, this whole notion about North Korea destroying this nuclear site, first of all, they already pre-destroyed <laughs> bullshit, right? Well, not only that, they pre-destroyed it because they, do, they don't know how to get missiles launched properly, and many of those missiles already have destroyed that location. So it was already halfway destroyed. So when these right. quote-unquote foreign journalists went out – by the way, it was only foreign journalists that are typically anti-American, number one. Number two, yep. there was nobody – from the international atomic community, the IAEA, that witnessed this. And the train ride, which was about five hours to the site, was done in the middle of the night. The shades were drawn. The North Koreans said, do not peek through the blinds and do not take any photos. So they were not allowed to see where they were going or anything like that. They get there, and that's when the, they showed them that they were breaking down the explosion. The reason they were doing that is because they were trying to curry favor. This was a right. charm offensive that started in South Korea at the Olympics and went all the way up to the point that it is now. The bottom line yep. is this North Korean regime never had any intention of dismantling their weapons program, number one. Right. They have never, right. ever kept to their word in any type of international treaty or agreement, number two. And number three, Trump holds all the cards because now what he's going to do is he's going to mm -hmm. pull back from this and he's going to force them to be even more isolated, number one. And number two, he's going to force them to, you know, to, to go basically and, and say, okay, if we're going to do any kind of negotiations, it has to two be on Trump's left. term, not on his term. Two, two minutes left in the show. So, uh, Josh, I yeah. want you to uh, you make your announcements, anything you want to announce real quick, 30 seconds, and then i got to wrap it up. Yeah, uh, I'm the national spokesman for AMAC. Uh, AMAC is the conservative alternative to AARP. It's a seniors-based organization. Folks can go to amac.us or they can call toll-free 888-262-2006. Mention my name in the Rory Souter Show, and you'll get a free membership, absolutely free Membership just for mentioning my name and Rory's name. Check us out, amac.us. If you want to learn about me, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Josh Bernstein and help me beat censorship by supporting the show there. You can download my free app on Android or iPhone, or you can watch the show on Amazon TV. Excellent. Jo Josh Bernstein, everybody. It's, it's always a pleasure having you on, Josh. We appreciate your insight and your knowledge. And, uh, Always love, uh, you know, getting all the details from you. Uh, thank you for coming on, um, and we'll, no we'll have you back on. Uh, 
we'll have you back on next week. And uh, I, wa- I want to thank everybody else uh, for coming on. And uh, I want to thank all of my uh, listeners. Um, I really appreciate all of you tuning in tonight. Um, please visit my uh, store, thedonaldjtrumpstore.com. Again, that's thedonaldjtrumpstore.com. You can also, and that's all Trump authentic, creative, unique apparel and merchandise. You can also visit um, RorySolder.tv. Again, that's RorySolder.tv. And you can find out a lot of, more about me and I, my companies. Uh, you can also visit my business, uh, GetYourAppBuilt.com. That, again, that's GetYourAppBuilt.com. And, and, and again, uh, this week I will be having a brand new media company uh, being released um, and which I'm very excited about. It's um, going to be very similar um, outlook to like Infowars, Fox News. Uh, created it, create, created it from, it's, created it from scratch. Very fancy. Uh, going to have a lot of great things. Um, I'm very excited to share it with all of you. Um, again, um, you know, and all the, the fan base is growing like crazy. Um, we're getting fans all over the United States and in different countries. So thank you for that. Um, but again, uh, we will see you, um, all, uh, next week. Uh, I'm Rory Sauter. Thank you for tuning in. Um, God bless. Cheers, everybody. Have a great weekend.